Mount Sinai. Now just look at the slide, first of all, here. Christian was graphically shown that a man cannot be relieved of the weights of his sins by law-keeping. He was graphically shown that. Don't try to fill in anything yet. By law-keeping and civility. As a matter of fact, the law makes sin more odious, the sinner more helpless, and the Savior more obvious. Fill in now the first words for today's lesson. Old business from the previous lesson. Christians detour to legality. The large majority of the population of this world are practicing some sort of, you tell me what the next blank should be. Uh, false would be a good word, not the word I wrote in there though. Works. Some sort of works religion in order to find happiness in this world and the one to come. Now, is that a true statement? Yes. Oh, I think when I say a large majority of the world's population, I, I mean, I'm talking about huge. Are they all trying to do works in the same way? No. But when, it really, when you really boil it all down, they're trying to work their way into heaven in some way. And, and that kind of parallels what Mr. Worldly Wise Man said to Christian. Ah, oh, you don't have to keep going along this path. Go here, and you'll get what you desire without all the hassles and everything. Didn't work. So, that brings us next. And who might that be? Well, of course, that's Zacchaeus. You remember that from your early days. A visit to a wee little man here. For our preliminary look at the word today, or at least part of it. Oh, by the way, by the way, let's stop. Let's pause. Let me back up. Let me back. Why, do, why did I insist that you have the sheet marked the world? Because I prepared that. Get that sheet marked the world. And I want to take a look at that. The, the, the sheet marked the law of God. Excuse me, not the world. The law of God. You have that one? should be on the other side of your wisdom sheet. I want to go through this somewhat quickly, but I think this is a time to do this. It is a very appropriate time to do it because we've talked about Christian being detoured to morality and civility and all. Let me go through this sheet and I, I you know, we could spend all of this Sunday school class and probably the next and maybe the next after that in dealing with this in detail. But let me give you what my thoughts were. First thing, three parts of the law. And we're talking about God's law here. Three parts of the law. Very commonly called civil, that's the first thing, civil law. Civil law, the first thing. Second of all, ceremonial law. And third thing, moral law. Civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. Do we find civil law in the Word of God? That is in the Old Testament? Of course we do. We find laws that were given to the nation of Israel. We studied back a while ago the, the good kings of Israel and by preliminary for those things, we looked at what God gave to direct the nation. Ceremonial law. Do we have ceremonial laws there? Well, of course we do. You just think of the book of Leviticus, for example, alone, but not Leviticus alone. The ceremonial worship of God, the sacrifices and all that. And then, do we have moral law in the Word of God? Of course we do. Circle the word moral right now, because that's really what we're talking about now. The moral law of God. And when we think of the moral law of God, it is not incorrect in our minds to think of the Ten Commandments. That's kind of a summarization of God's moral law. So that brings us to the next thing. 
what the law of God reflects. And I'm thinking especially now about the moral law, but it would include the other aspects also. I think there are two things, basically. First line, the kind of lawgiver he is. The law of God, and if you want to think the Ten Commandments, then that, that's perfectly fine. When you read the Ten Commandments, you see, I don't know whether you've ever thought of it this way before, but you see the kind of lawgiver that God is. What is the first commandment? Worship the Lord your God only, right? He's a jealous God. He is the only living and true God. Uh, and so on and so forth. The second line is this. What does the law of God reflect? How we are to please him. How we are to please him. If you think through the Ten Commandments and think through them carefully and correctly, then you will see that in keeping them, we are given a guideline as to how to please him. We, we might think of that especially with regard to the second table of the law, the law with respect to our responsibilities to our fellow man, but nonetheless true for the first table of the law also. But let me go to the second, to the next thing. Can a person be saved by keeping the law? Well, I put a couple things here because you might say immediately, no or yes. The first thing is how to? By keeping the law perfectly. If we kept the law perfectly, we could be saved by keeping the law. Has anyone ever done this? Casper, who did it? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus did it. So you, you better write that one down. And you can even write the word only. Only Jesus. He perfectly kept the law in our place. Why can't we do this? Because we're sinners. We're sinners who are born in sin. We came into this world as sinners. We, we, we didn't become a sinner when we, as a wee little baby, shook our head no the first time. No, no. We were born in sin. Uh, what about people who do not have the law? Hmm. They're responsible all right let's write this down they have the law of God written in their hearts and what do we call it somebody said it already Libby I think you said it the word conscience conscience the law of God written in their hearts is conscience we read about that in Romans Romans chapter 2 especially when Paul is talking about sin, you know, homartiology, uh, the study of sin, and he concludes that all the Jews are guilty, but what about the Gentiles who don't have the law? They're guilty too. They have the law of God written in their hearts. The three uses of the law, in reform circles in particular, historically, it has been said that there are three specific uses of the law. Number one, a mirror. Again, think of God's moral law. Think of the Ten Commandments. It's like a mirror reflecting God's righteousness and our sinfulness. You look into that mirror, and what do you see? I'm a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. The mirror reflects that. Number two, a restrainer of evil. I, I kind of think of this like a bridle on a horse. It's a restrainer. The law is like a mirror. We look at it, we see ourselves reflected as we truly are lawbreakers. But second of all, a restrainer of evil. And you can write down the reference, Psalm 1911 for that. A third, it enlightens as to what is pleasing to the Father. It enlightens as to what is pleasing to the Father. Next question. Should a Christian seek to keep the law? Well, Jesus said, and I'm going to quote his words accurately here, I trust, from John 14, 15, If you love me, 
What's the rest of it say? Keep my commandments. Keep, me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, uh, please understand this. Do, do, do not misunderstand here. When I ask the question, should a Christian seek to keep the law? When we talk about Christian here, in this context, in this sentence, we're talking about someone who is truly a Christian. Not Christian before he became a Christian, like we're reading about in Pilgrim's Progress right now. The one who is truly, by repentance and faith, trusted in Christ. Should a Christian keep the law? My, my contention is yes, yes. Can we say, well, no, I don't have to keep the law that says you shall not bear false witness or you shall not covet. Doesn't relate to me. Christ was the end of the law for righteousness and all. That is a misunderstanding. Yes, we should keep the law. Now, there's one more thing that I retyped onto the master that you don't have and that I've written in on my sheet, and it is this. There's room for one last note, and the note is this. Beware of legalism. Beware of legalism. And what is meant by that? Well, what does legalism do? Legalism exalts the law over grace. Legalism says that you can earn your way to heaven by following certain man-made laws. Uh, legalism adheres to the letter of the law and excludes the spirit of the law. In the New Testament, for example, who were the epitome of the legalists? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. The, Pharisees. the epitome of legalism. And, and I think it would be very interesting if we wanted to study that further to look at that. And, and Jesus oftentimes says, you should have done what they said and yet have done this also. You know, their problem was they said, but they didn't do, you know, and, and that they tithe mint and cumin and anise and all those other little herbs, you know. I can see a little flower garden of those things, and they went through and counted ten and pulled one out and all that kind of stuff, and, and yet they missed the big things. So they emphasize the letter of the law over what? Over the spirit. Over, over the spirit of the law, yeah. So, I, you know... Uh, like I said, that sheet kind of took form in my mind last week as I was showering <laughs> on Sunday morning, and I had to get it out on paper. So there you have what my thoughts were, and we could spend a lot longer time on that. But now let's really get into the lesson for today. There's, there's just so much. There's so, so much here that... <clears throat> We are led to delve into further when we're reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress here. So, preliminary look at the word. We just did one preliminary look. Here's the real preliminary look for this week. A visit to a wee little man. The reference is Luke 19. The city is Jericho, J-E-R-I-C-H-O, Jericho. And that wee little man is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a little bit tricky to spell. But it's on the screen here for you. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the rich chief tax collector. Now, I have my Bible open to Luke chapter 19. I want to read these verses from the beginning of the chapter. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was see seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the house of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, a half, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, 
Today, the next word, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, it would be wrong to stop reading there because the next verse says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's uh, by many recognized as the key verse in the whole Gospel of Luke. So let's make just a couple more notations here. And the notation is this for your notes. Zacchaeus, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus professes his faith in Jesus. Zacchaeus professes his faith in Jesus and changes his whole manner of living. That's the evidence that Jesus had really made a difference in his life. The matter of salvation. I, I think that's key in Luke chapter 19 and in regard to Zacchaeus. So, so that brings us to this, this area of theology known as soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. I have a little quote in your notes from Dr. William Hendrickson, who is certainly one of my favorite commentators and was so influential in forming me in my years of teaching as to what I taught and how I taught it. But Dr. Hendrickson said in his commentary on the pastorals, it was to save sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world. He did not come to help them save themselves, nor to induce them to save themselves, nor even to enable them to save themselves. He came to save them. Now, there is a chart on the screen, and this is a little bit different from the chart that I simplified in our notes here with a lot of, uh, a lot of scripture references written in there in parentheses. Dr. Hendrickson says, in the fullest sense, the fullest biblical sense, salvation includes, on the one hand, to be rescued from the worst condition, and on the other hand, to be brought into the best condition. Now, you can simply take the words that I've highlighted in red on both sides of this column and choose those words to write in the four squares on the left and the four squares in the right. To be rescued from the worst condition. First of all, a condition of guilt. Of guilt. Second of all, the condition of slavery. Being slaves to sin. Third, a condition of alienation. We are alienated from God. And fourth, to be saved or to be rescued from the condition of wrath. And it's very interesting when we think of that condition of wrath, not only the wrath to come, but according to what Jesus said in John, we are under wrath right now. If we don't know Christ, we're children of wrath, yeah. But not only to bring men out of the worst possible condition to rescue them from that, but to, be, to, but to bring them into the best condition. A condition of righteousness, that is of reconciliation to God. Next, a condition of freedom. Therefore, being justified by faith. A third, a condition of fellowship, being in God's favor. And, and finally, the condition of everlasting life. And God, by, by salvation, uh, does that. Now, in just a couple minutes, that is a glimpse at the matter of salvation. But I think it's a fuller glimpse than oftentimes, oftentimes we consider. 
You know, if I, if I were to ask you, what does it mean, you know, I am saved or whatever? And we think, well, this is a more full and, and I think a very well thought out summarization of what's involved in salvation. We will perhaps have to say more about that, and indeed I will, but not yet. So, let's finally get into the book that we're looking at here. I'm just going to put those things on the screen quickly. There's nothing for you to write here. But this is really the point of the journey that we're on. Christian will arrive at the wicket gate. Then he will travel along a straight and narrow way and come to the interpreter's house. Then he'll leave that and travel along a highway that's described as having walls of salvation around it. And then he runs up the hill to the cross and his burden rolls off and into the open tomb. And then he meets there three shining ones. That's all what's involved here. Can we possibly cover this part of the journey this morning? I'm thinking especially in terms of this part right here. Well, let's see. Let's see. The wicked gate. Let me just, so I don't have to keep, since I don't have my remote here with me. I'm going to put all that on the board. But I'll look at it on the notes here. Number three, persons and places along the way. The wicked gate. The inscription above the gate has the words, Knock, and it shall be opened to you. That's above the wicked gate. Very important at this point is to pause, and, and these things can be passed over so quickly, so quickly, but is to pause and see how Christian knocked at the wicked gate. He knocked more than once. He knocked, and I think we could just summarize it with the word earnestly. He knocked in earnest at the wicked gate. That is a point that should not be glossed over quickly or easily. He knocked earnestly. He knocked until it opened. And then, there's a remark here, and I want to look in my book, and in my book here, it's on page 31, I'm sure it's not on page 31 in your book, but it is the first poem that is found in the text of the story. First of many, there will be many poems. I, I, I stand in awe, again, of Bunyan as a poet. But these are the words of that first poem. May I now enter here? Will he within open to sorry me, though I have been an undeserving rebel? Then shall I not fail to sing his lasting phrase on high. Now, my friend, I mean, I guess we're not close personal friends. I don't think we've ever had a talk or anything. But Derek Thomas, whom I've heard many times and read many things from him, uh, Derek Thomas is not the biggest fan of Bunyan's poetry, but that little four-line poem here, how, how would I summarize that? I would summarize it in this way. Number one, I am undeserving. I am undeserving. And you can write a little slash, and here's the next line. It'll all fit on your line, I think. But I will praise him. I am undeserving, but I will praise him. Let me read that again to you now. May I now enter here? Will he within open to sorry me? Though I have been an undeserving rebel, then shall I not fail to sing his, praise, his lasting praise on high. The summary of it. I'm unworthy, but I will praise him that I can enter here. Uh, Jesus said, and most of, the, most of this slide has this quotation here, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, 
and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The words, not quite in the order in which I have them on the screen here, are this. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, the gate that leads to life is narrow. The gate that leads to life is narrow. There are few who find it. It opens to a way that is hard. A way that is hard. So, he goes in and he is met by a man that Bunyan names Goodwill. 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 Let's go through it here now. Goodwill. He is described as grave. Grave. Why is he described as grave? Well, because he always is looking to the city of destruction. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Why is he always looking to the city of destruction? Because through this wicked gate, looking back that way, is the city of destruction from which Christian and the other pilgrims are coming. They're coming from the city of destruction. So he opens the door, and he's always looking back and seeing the city of destruction. Furthermore, Bunyan says uh, he's always seeing perishing men, weary pilgrims, and these things give him a, a grave or a serious look. Three questions and answered, answers. Very briefly, they are, uh, who is there? Where did you come from? And what would you have? Who is there? Where have you come from? And what would you have? And Christian answers them. Uh, it is... It is a characteristic as we go through the book that there will be questions and answers oftentimes which give us a chance in the course of reading the story to review what we have seen thus far. And, and we really haven't gone too awfully far uh, in this. But let's come to the next thing. Goodwill pulls Christian through the gate because arrows were shot from a nearby castle of Beelzebub. You can see the arrows pictured in this particular representation, artist representation of Christian entering through the wicked gate. Goodwill pulls him in because arrows are being shot. Now, now who is Beelzebub? The devil. The devil or Satan. What does Beelzebub mean? Lord of the Flies? Lord of the Flies. There was a novel. There was a novel called The Lord of the Flies, but Lord of the Flies, I, th I think it's one of the, dare I say, one of the derogatory names that the enemies of the Lord Jesus gave to him when they are uh, committing the unpardonable sin and saying that Jesus performed miracles by the power of the devil. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, I, I had a professor one time, Professor Gary Cohen, who described that expression, Lord of the Flies, as essentially meaning Lord of the Garbage Can. In other words, it, you, you can't think of something more deplorable than that. It, that. That was Dr. Cohen's estimation of it. All right, to continue, to continue. This, the devil shooting the arrows from the castle of Beelzebub was in an attempt to kill pilgrims before they entered in an attempt to kill pilgrims before they entered. Goodwill said, an open door is set before you and no man can shut it. No man can shut it. Bunyan is quoting Revelation 3.8. Many of you, in editions that you have, will find these references in your margins. But I have a question at this point. Is Bunyan referring to the door of salvation, the wicked gate as the door of salvation? I want you to take the poll right here. 
Okay. Yes, no, not sure, perhaps, I need more time. All right, I'll give you 10 seconds to cast your vote. Are you ready to vote? How many vote yes? How many vote no? How many vote not sure? How many vote perhaps? How many vote I need more time? <laughs> how would you like to know how I voted? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> not right now. Not right now. But I will tell you. Who knows? Maybe before today's class hour is over. Not likely, but maybe. All right, let's continue. Let's continue. Um, why does Christian say that he, that is Christian, is no better than pliable? That's an interesting question here. Christian says, I'm no better than pliable. Do you remember who pliable was? Yeah, who was pliable? Somebody tell me. I listened to everybody and he, he fell and followed Christian to the slough. I was called to the slew. Right, to the marsh. The he left it, you know, he going out and he said, I don't want any more of this. Mr. Changeable, you know, I'll go whatever direction is convenient to go. Why does Christian say I'm no better than pliable? Well, pliable turned back, and Christian actually turned aside from the way to follow the advice of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. So there was, a, there was a similarity there, you know. So he says. Christian turned away? Or? Uh, Christian, Christian allowed himself to be turned away. Yeah, Christian turned aside. Uh, Christian told Goodwill, and I love this, that he knew that it was God's mercy that evangelists came to him again after his straying to the house of legality. Goodwill said, we make no objections against any notwithstanding all that they have done before they came here. The words before they came here. Are you with me? They in no wise are cast out. Goodwill then stressed to Christian that the way to distinguish the right way for him to go is that the right way would be straight and narrow. Now before I show you the next slide, when Christian asked if goodwill could help him off with his burden, this is what he was told. Be content to bear it now until you come to the place of deliverance. Be content to bear it now until you come to the place of deliverance. So, so far, Christian is not released of the burden upon his back. You can kind of see it on his back here when he gets into uh, the place where Mr. Goodwill was. It doesn't come off his back yet. So, time to go to the next slide here, and there it is, there it is. I don't know what it exactly looked like that, but it's a slide that I thought it best represented the house of the interpreter. Now, this is going to get a little lighter so I can put some things on top of it. The next thing in your notes here. A short way further, Christian, who refers to himself at this point as a traveler. I thought that's very interesting in the text. He refers to, Christian refers to himself as a traveler. What have we learned so far? Well, no name was given to him at first. Then he's called Christian. And then when we've told that he actually was named Graceless, that was his kind of his given name, if you will. But now he refers to himself just as a traveler. <clears throat> to the best of my knowledge, he, he never refers to himself in that way again, but at this point, that's the way he refers to himself. And he comes to this house, and again, he knocked 
over and over before gaining entrance. The interpreter. This is the interpreter's house. The interpreter, who is he now? Well, some say that the interpreter represents the Holy Spirit in his teaching and enlightening capacity. Others say that he is a minister of the gospel and that the rooms of the house represent various theological truths from his sermons. So the interpreter, perhaps the Holy Spirit, perhaps a minister of the gospel. Uh, can I just pause here and say that now some of you may be watching the segments of the Pilgrim's Progress no. uh, thing that's coming in segments from Revelation Media. And I have that, and I was so excited to get that when, when it came out years ago, and some of us even went and saw it when it, it, it aired in the theaters, and, and I, I enjoyed it. There, there are certain criticisms that I have of it and, and all. I, I mean, I, I really very much like the ministry of Revelation Media and what they are preparing uh, to do. Uh, I, I love artwork, and to see the artwork that apparently a worldwide staff of artists is involved in is just amazing but in representing christian coming to the house of the interpreter the way i see it in that in that representation the interpreter sure enough looks like it's a woman first of all which which i didn't like and the second thing is it's it looks like Mrs. Getty. Who is Mrs. Getty? Oh, Chris is Getty. She's the singer. And yeah. It's her voice. It, it, it's her voice. And she is the one who gives the introduction to, to the whole thing also. And, and, you know, I love her. I love their music. I really do. But I, I, just, I, I just can't understand why it was represented in that way. I, I don't know. But let's move on. Let's move on. So, Christian has come to the house of the interpreter, and what takes place while he is in the house of the interpreter is like a tour of the home, a tour of various rooms in the home, and every one of the rooms that he goes to has something very significant to see. Now, at the foot of the page... <coughs> I have a quote from Leland Riken. Leland Riken says, In reading Pilgrim's Progress, it is always important to analyze Bunyan's selectivity of details. The overall purpose of the book is to explain the nature of a Christian's experience. But why did Bunyan include the specific aspects of that experience as we find in his story? To call a house the interpreter's house speaks volumes. The Puritans placed a very high priority on a person's grasp of Christian truth. You can underline those words. May I recommend that? A very high priority on a person's grasp of Christian truth. That grasp requires us to interpret the Bible and theology accurately. It is no surprise that Bunyan highlights the importance of interpretation at this early phase of the Christian of the pilgrim's progress in faith. And so what I prepared for you was a chart, which I kind of modified from a previous version of this chart, and it will take us on a tour of the house. How many rooms can we get through? Well, the first room, which is described here as uh, a private room. Christian sees a portrait of a grave-looking man. He kind of likes that word grave, doesn't he? You know, a grave, sober-looking man. And there are six features in that painting. Now, I have all the features ready to come down the screen here. Ready? And here they are. 
and imagine yourself seeing this portrait now. And I love this picture when I found it. It kind of it pictures Pilgrim, and you'll notice, or Christian, you notice he still has his, his burden on his back. And this is the interpreter here. And this is a picture that he's looking at. In that portrait, the man has his eyes up to heaven. In his hand, he is holding the best of books. On his lips was written the law of truth. The world was behind his back. He's leaving the world behind. He is pleading with men. And a crown of gold is over his head. What it meant. In, in trying to capsulize this in one simple statement, I put it this way. It pictures... The only man that the Lord of the place where Christian is going had authorized to be his guide in the difficulties he would meet. And who was that person? The preacher of the gospel. The preacher of the gospel will guide men according to the truth in the way that they should go. All right? Let's go to the second room. One room down. And this is an interesting room. Some of you ladies can maybe relate to this better than many of us men. It is a large parlor, in the way Bunyan describes it. It is a room full of dust because it had never been cleaned. A room full of dust. And this is your left-hand column, what he saw. A room full of dust because it had never been cleaned. And there are two sweepers. A first sweeper and a second sweeper. In your right hand column, what it meant. Well, that dust represents the inward corruptions of the soul. A dusty place, a place that needs to be cleaned. Let's put it that way. The first sweeper was the law. The law. And it just stirs up a dust storm. I, I kind of started coughing when I'm reading at this point. The second sweeper is sprinkling water, settling the dust, and doing a true cleaning. And that represents the gospel. Again, going back to the law of God. The Apostle Paul in Galatians says the law is our Pedagogos is the word he used. The law is a schoolmaster or a tutor, various ways it could be translated, but the sense of it is the law teaches us our first important lessons, but then the law drives us to Christ. So I had a student one time who said in class when we were looking at this, you know, we were saying the law is our pedagogos and tried to describe the, the function of a pedagogos in the Greco-Roman world. And that student said, the law was like a school bus, <laughs> you know, that took them to school, took them to and from school. That's an interesting way of putting it. But the law takes you and shows you, again, who you are and you're lost and without hope. And it drives us to Christ, where the answer is. The large parlor and the two sweepers. The third room. The third room. There are two children in this room. Two children in chairs. The names of the two children are Passion and patience. And there is a bag of treasure in the room with them. Now, in this particular picture that I chose here, uh, passion and patience almost look like little girls, but they're not. They're, they're, they're young men who are dressed that way back then. Did I ever wear an outfit like that since I'm from an age long ago? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. If I did, I'd like to forget it, you know. But anyhow, 
Who are they representing? Here we go. Right-hand column. The first, the carnal man who must have everything now. That's passion. Now, passion, that word passion is sometimes used in a good sense, of course. But in this sense, it's not used in a good sense. It is the carnal man who must have everything now. The second of those two children, named Patience, represents those who wait quietly for that which is to come. And as Christian was looking in that room and looking at that picture, and this is kind of like a moving picture, of course, in that room, the first, that is passion, greedily consumes the treasure and was left in rags. And was left in rags. There's a lesson to be learned there. Time to go into another room. And I remember... I think Ellen, you might remember this too. When we were in the, the Bunyan meeting and the museum there, they actually had a wall that had a fireplace on one side and on the other, on both sides of the wall. At, at that point in time, uh, I, I mean, since we were there with our dear friends Carl and Linda Rudolph, since then I have learned so much about Pilgrim's Progress. I'm still not the ultimate expert on it by a long stretch, but. I appreciate this a whole lot more. So the fireplace. What he saw, a fire burning in a fireplace. And he saw one who continuously threw water on it. One who continuously threw water on the fire. But it burned higher and hotter. So... Here's the way this particular artist has pictured this. Here's, here's the wall. There's a fireplace there. This is the simple fireplace. And here is one who just pouring water on this, and the fire keeps burning. How can that be? How can that be? Well, if you look at, and I guess I can add some words to this that are prepared, or it's maybe a little bit hard to see here, the way I put these all on here. What he saw, what it meant. Fire equals the work of grace in the heart. How convenient to have a little symbol to put in there for heart so I can fit it all on one line. The fire represents the work of grace in the heart. The one throwing the water is the devil. On the other side of the wall was one pouring oil continuously on the fire representing Christ pouring on the oil of his grace and that fire never grows out. So here is the oil being poured on the fire and not only keeps the fire going here, but keeps the fire going here. Also, in spite of the work of Satan. There's a lesson to be learned here. The next one... <clears throat> This is, in a sense, the most elaborate of the pictures so far. Uh, this is described in Bunyan's description of these things. They came to a pleasant place, and there they saw this. They saw a stately palace, and having said that, I'm going to stop right there. They saw a stately palace. Palace. I'm going to stop right there because this, there are several aspects to this particular picture and I would be stealing from your time if I continued on this. We, we haven't gotten through the interpreter's house yet. Listen to me carefully now. But I guarantee you that next week we come to the cross. I guarantee you. Now, can you trust me on that one? We'll see, right? We come to the cross, and I'm going to at least offer you my suggestions as to 
whether I think Christian was saved at the wicked gate or whether he saved at the cross or perhaps some other some other such thing involving that. So, keep reading since we're coming to the cross next time. Keep reading until you come to the palace beautiful. Christian will leave there and he will be on his way to the palace beautiful and uh, you won't have to read too many pages to get to that. These are relatively simple uh, sections of pages. There'll be some more really significant things that happen in the palace. Beautiful. There really will be. I hope you're enjoying this reading. We're not reading this quickly, are we? Or at least I'm not talking about it quickly. Can't help myself. So, my revised prediction is, my first prediction was, we'll be done before Christmas. But maybe by Easter. <laughs> no, I look at them before that, I think. Don't know. I, I love this story. No kidding. And, and I wish that we could call Mr. C.H. Burton to come and elaborate on one of our lectures in the course of the whole thing, seeing that he probably was the greatest lover of Pilgrim Progress that there ever was. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the study that we're involved in here. Lord, there's so many, so many truths to consider. So many things. Uh, and Lord, we thank you for the, the story. And we thank you for the fact that Bunyan was just saturated with scripture as he wrote the story. Some things are hard to understand. But Bunyan was just bleeding out the truth that God had placed in his heart. So Lord, bless us in the week to come. Lord, help us in the things that we're going to experience, the things that we're going to face this week. We probably can predict some of the things, but there are probably things that we don't know about right now. And I just pray that you help us to be ready for those things and to be your servants in those situations. Help us, Lord, in the opportunities we'll have to be able to tell others about Christ. And Lord, especially I pray you'd be with Alan this week, Lord. I pray that his surgery would go well. And I pray that when we see him next week, there will be such a good report. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.